Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Can You Survive This Podcast. My guest today is the founder of a company called Third Wave, and he is the author of the book Mastering Microdosing, How to Use Subperceptual Psychedelics to Heal Trauma, Improve Performance, and Transform Your Life. Paul F. Austin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. This is a bit of a unique flavor of podcasts i mean we were just talking about this before we went live around the the sort of uh gauntlet at the end that you've set up so let's let's see how we fare prior to the can you survive this thing but i'm I'm excited to come on and talk about psychedelics for your community your veteran community your and everyone else who's listening to the the show i think psychedelics have shown such incredible healing potential for a lot of challenges and issues that we are currently faced with and um, they're fascinating substances that we've been using for thousands of years, and um, it's fun just to provide a sliver of insight about the practicalities and microdosing, how they work, all these sorts of things. Yeah, amazing. Um, can you tell me, why don't you tell me a little bit about the book? Like, when did you write it and like, how did you come to write it? What kind of research did you do to uh, to put the book together? So... I started Third Wave in 2015, so about eight and a half years ago now is when I started publicly educating people on the, let's say, benefits and risks of psychedelics. And I came into that path as someone who had, in my you know late teenage, early formative years, basically in, in college, I had my own experiences with psychedelics, largely LSD, but also with psilocybin mushrooms. And for a week or two weeks or three weeks after these experiences, and these were at higher doses, not microdoses initially, so higher doses, I noticed that I felt more connected, more present. Uh, there was this afterglow period in which life felt a little bit smoother and easier. And a lot of my, let's say, insights or perspectives that were generated through psychedelic use related to freedom for you know autonomy, sovereignty, 
right? Like, how could I live my life on my own terms in a really sort of unique and, and creative way? And so after graduating from college, I moved abroad to Turkey where I taught English for a year and then became more or less a digital nomad and was working online. This is 2013, 2014, working online and traveling and living in places like Thailand and Portugal and Mexico. And one of the places that I was in during that period of time was Budapest. And this was mid 2015. And I was with a couple of friends and we were having an LSD experience in the hills outside Budapest, reflecting on the state of psychedelics in 2015. And at that point in time, you had figures like Joe Rogan and Tim Ferriss who were starting to publish podcasts publicly about psychedelics. And one of the podcasts I listened to was specific to microdosing. And this was in early 2015. And I heard about microdosing and thought back to those early experiences that I had with psychedelics and thought, oh, maybe this is a way to elongate that afterglow. You know, maybe I can keep the window of neuroplasticity open for longer. It can be a great tool to weave in, you know, new practices like meditating more often or eating healthier or exercising more. And so when I heard about microdosing, naturally I had to try it. So for about seven months, I took a low dose of LSD, about 15 micrograms, which is about a 10th of a regular dose. And I would do this a couple of times a week. And I had two intentions with this initial microdosing protocol. One was to drink less alcohol, that I had, you know, some level of social anxiety. And like most people cover that up by drinking booze. And I thought, this is definitely not healthy. Like, what if there's a better way? And so I would microdose these low doses of LSD to, to help with that. And the second intention was as an early entrepreneur, I was really interested in flow states, being in the zone, productivity, creativity. And what I found after doing that initial protocol was this was super beneficial. And I just observed that, you know, people were starting to talk more about psychedelics and, and maybe it would be helpful to help um, a lot of people do this safely, do this intentionally. And so I just started publishing content about microdosing. And the first book that I published was actually in 2016 about microdosing. I published a second edition of that in 2018. And then in 2022, end of 2022, I published Mastering Microdosing, more or less as like a third edition, but really made a lot of updates to the research because between 2018 and 2023, there was a ton of research that came out about psychedelics and more specifically microdosing. And so the intention with mastering microdosing is for those who are brand new to this, who just want an easy to read book that provides a lot of practical steps, talks about the neuroscience, talks about the effect on trauma, talks about the effect on performance and flow. Um, I basically have this as a like an initial resource that folks can dive into. And also, if there are people listening to this who maybe have tried microdosing, have experienced it a little bit, but want to refine it, which we can talk more about in the podcast as well, they want to um, improve their skill set as it relates to microdosing. This book is also helpful in terms of protocols. And, you know, if you want to combine microdosing with breath work or working out, like why are there synergistic benefits between low doses of psychedelics? And uh, things like breathwork, meditation, yoga, you know, back in the day when I lived in Thailand and was microdosing with LSD, I used to go to CrossFit and take acid before I went to CrossFit. And it helps to reduce fatigue. It helps to improve energy. It helps to improve coordination. So um, 
Yeah, I'd say that that's the fundamental aspect of it. It's like it's a skill set. I think a lot of people would benefit from it. And since there are so many folks who are new to this, there's a lot of just fundamental questions about, well, how much is a microdose? How often do I do this? Right? How do I do I have a coach or a guide or a therapist as I'm doing this? And this book goes into all of those details and more. Amazing. So I'm curious what kind of research or what are people saying? Why, why does microdosing make all these things easier? Why is it easier to get into a flow state or perform better by taking a psychedelic? So a lot of the research on psychedelics is specific to high doses, high doses of MDMA. So the FDA is on the verge of approving MDMA as a treatment for PTSD that will likely happen in, in 2024 which is phenomenal for veterans. We have 22 veterans who commit suicide every day. And MDMA's efficacy to treat PTSD is three times current psychiatric treatments, three times as effective. And then there's also a lot of interesting psychedelic research on high doses of psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in uh, psilocybin mushrooms, magic mushrooms, to show how it helps with depression, how it helps with addiction, how it helps with even traumatic brain injury. So um, there, there's a lot of clues in that high-dose research as to why psychedelics help so much with not only mental health challenges, but also things like flow, creativity. And a lot of it comes down to how it impacts the brain, um, what it does to the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that is responsible for executive functioning, decision-making, communication, Right. And so there's a substantial relationship between um, what psychedelics facilitate in the serotonin system and the impact that it has on how the brain is more coherent and communicates better. And one of the underlying aspects of this is its impact on neuroplasticity. So, neuroplasticity is the capacity for our brain to change, to be malleable, to adapt. It's often indicated by a growth in gray matter. Uh, of the brain. And when there's more gray matter, it means the the brain is healthier, uh, uh, more or less. And so when we look at low doses of psychedelics, microdosing, it's somewhere between a meditation practice and a very high dose of a psychedelic in terms of what it does to the brain. A very high dose of a psychedelic uh, interrupts everything. It creates massive chaos. It's sort of like shaking up the snow globe of your consciousness and what that does is it allows for this window of neuroplasticity for you to for you to weave new habits and behaviors. The best metaphor that I've read about this is, you know, similar to when we go snowboarding or skiing, there are the normal sort of ruts that we go down that are really well trotted. Um, but when there's a massive powder dump, that's the best day to go back out because you can weave a lot of new paths and trails and get more creative with it. And taking a psychedelic a high dose of a psychedelic is somewhat like that. It's like um, basically having a fresh powder day in your consciousness where you can actively choose to uh, behave in new ways. There's less resistance to that that behavioral change. And you know that comes with some risks. That comes with the necessity of having maybe a medical professional or a guide or a therapist. It's not always easy. It's quite intense, uh, but the outcomes can be substantial and significant. Uh, meditation, on the other hand, you know, there's been research on meditation that's shown that if you meditate for six weeks straight, 
you know, mindfulness meditation for 20 to 25 minutes, that there's a substantial change in gray matter in the brain, uh, meaning it can help the brain to become more malleable and adaptable. And where these two converge, interestingly enough, is they've done some research comparing the brains of long-term meditators, people who have been meditating for over 40 years, to the brains of people who are on a high dose of a psychedelic. And there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of commonality. And so one, I, one of the interesting aspects of microdosing is how could microdosing, if people don't necessarily want to um, always be doing high doses of mushrooms, which I don't recommend, or maybe they don't have the capacity to meditate for two hours every day for 40 years, my sense is microdosing can act as a great sort of opener, a great catalyst. It does help to increase BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is a precursor to neuroplasticity. And essentially what it's doing is it's, just, it's sort of, um, um, it's, it's lubricating the decision-making process so it becomes easier. The brain is more chilled out. The uh, body is able to drop in. And um, when people meditate, or I'm sorry, when people microdose consistently, typically a microdosing protocol is you'll take a microdose one or two or three times a week for a period of 30 days or 60 days or 90 days. And people notice that, oh, after about 60 days, I'm less reactive, less angry. I have more energy. My mood is better. There are a lot of people who uh, are looking to wean off certain psychiatric medications like SSRIs or ADHD medications and are doing that with the support of microdosing or low dosing, which uh, as a caveat should always be done with a medical professional if someone is on certain conventional psychiatric medications. Um, and a lot of it, again, comes down to greater coherence and communication between the two hemispheres of the brain, that there's something that gets activated. And this is why it's so helpful for TBI and depression, because the a sort of fundamental aspect of depression is the dying off of dendrites and neurons in the brain. And so a lot of people talk about psychedelics and how they're making these new connections in the brain, which actually is not accurate. Psychedelics reopen old connections. They, they essentially return us to a more childlike state where our brain looks like it did when we were five or six or seven. And so by activating those old connections that have died off, it has this really interesting impact on our ability to actually make choices and decisions that aren't so rooted in the past or rooted in trauma or rooted in things that have happened to us, uh, but instead allows a little bit more, I would say, autonomy and saying, no, actually I have choice, I can change, and this is how I'm going to choose to change. I'm going to choose to you know, sleep more. I'm going to choose to exercise more. I'm going to choose to eat healthier. I'm going to choose to meditate more often. Uh, and, and that I think is its greatest power and impact. And with, thank you for sharing that with microdosing, this is not enough. This is a low enough dose that you don't even really feel high at all. Right. So the, 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 there's sort of two paths here. So the book that I wrote is talking about the subperceptual use of psychedelics, meaning you might notice a tiny bit, but by, you know, it's going to be very, very, very subtle. And you might not even notice it the day of, it might be the next day or, you know, over a span of doing this for three or four weeks, you'll start to notice little significant changes. You have a little bit more energy. You do a few more pull-ups at the gym, you're a little bit more patient within a difficult conversation. And so that's truly subperceptual where you feel nothing, nothing at all. And, and the other 
way to frame it is that it's sub-intoxicating. And there's a difference between being sub-perceptual and sub-intoxicating. And some people would say that a microdose, you can feel, like you notice that you're on something, you notice that there's a slightly enhanced sense of touch or smell or taste or vision. There may be more emotions that are present, but it's not so overwhelming that you can't navigate your everyday reality. You can still work. You can still go out to dinner with friends. You can still, you're not intoxicated. Uh, there's still no visuals necessarily. And so for most folks, what I find is they're actually doing that. They're taking a dose that's low enough where they're not intoxicated, even if they can feel it. And a lot of folks simply don't want to feel much of anything. You know, it's better to have it be sub-perceptual. It's less risky to some degree because a lot of people who start to microdose, you know, they have jobs, they have families, they have things going on. And one of the core worries or concerns that I hear is like, what if I do too much? What if I can't function appropriately? And so what I always recommend to folks is to start low and go slow, that you can always take more. You can't necessarily take less. So better to start at five micrograms of LSD and go up to 10 to 15 to 20 or 50 milligrams of psilocybin and go to 100, 150, 200, and just slowly titrate up till you find a level that's appropriate for you. And that takes, it can take a week or two to find the right dose for you. But once you find the right dose, then how do you commit to that dose twice a week for 30 days or twice a week for 60 days with an intention? Because the intention is what enables you to focus on a goal, an objective, an outcome, right? If your energy is too dissipated or too unfocused, then you may not notice any significant or substantial progress after 30 or 60 days. But bringing an intention to that process helps you to see tangible outcomes that can lead to basically a better life. Amazing. Yeah, I've I've had some veterans on the show who have done psychedelic retreats to heal things like TBI and PTSD, um, anxiety, depression, but those I think are much higher doses and they report that it can be very challenging, um, but also they, they seem to get a lot out of it as well. Um, but the microdosing is seems to be quite a different approach. And the two work in tandem or they can, right? A lot of people who are intimidated by taking very high doses of psychedelics. Um, you know, my parents are a great example. Never smoked weed, you know, never really done any drugs. Pious Christian people from the Midwest. My mom still hasn't done anything, but my dad, very skeptical and very hesitant until Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind came out in 2018. And we have this thing where I'll send him a book to read and then he'll send me a book to read. And then we talk about it. And so I sent him Michael Pollan's book to read and he read it and was like, okay, you know, I'd been working professionally in psychedelics at this point in time for about three years. So my parents knew about it. Um, they were familiar with it. I sent them a lot of the research. So they were like becoming more open to it. But then my dad read that book and I was like, what if you just start to microdose, like try microdosing? So he tried microdosing a little bit, noticed, oh, this is helpful. This really isn't anything to be scared or intimidated by. And then that eventually led him to being more open to doing a higher dose of, of, of psilocybin. So I think for folks who are hesitant, maybe there's some fear, um, some uncertainty, starting at these lower doses and you're working your way up can be a great way to um, yeah, navigate uncharted waters. Um, you know, whereas people who are really struggling 
what I've noticed, like people who have PTSD and have struggled for years or who have TBI or like they've tried everything else and nothing has worked and they're sort of at their last step. I find the high dose is actually the most beneficial because a lot of these people have nothing to lose and they're willing to leave everything behind because that's how much they want to live and care about life. And so they then will, they have a bigger risk tolerance basically. Uh, and so these high doses of psychedelics, then the impacts could be immediate, immediately felt. Um, they can be more challenging, especially for people who have had TBIs or PTSD or have depression or are alcoholics, that there's often a big T trauma that underlies that um, in PTSD or in war veterans. It's obvious what that is, but there are people who are survivors of sexual assault who had abusive you know, parents, abusive alcoholic parents when they were young. And so facing and confronting and most importantly, forgiving those things that happen to us is where a lot of the healing lies in psychedelics. There's, there's a catharsis um, when we work with high doses of psychedelics that allows our subconscious and our unconscious to allow repressed emotion, repressed stories, and repressed material to come to the surface. And it's in that catharsis and that processing, essentially making the unconscious conscious, that allows for the healing. Uh, it allows us to sort of confront our demons, the deepest and darkest parts of ourselves, look at it in the eye and realize that it's not nearly as scary as we thought it was. And that's why psychedelics are so great because it's like someone is like holding your hand, not necessarily literally, but it's like you have an ally. And what it's doing in the brain is really interesting that at these high doses in particular, it's downregulating the fear response from the amygdala. And so neurobiologically, the reason psychedelics are so helpful for people, especially with PTSD is the reason PTSD persists, one of the main reasons PTSD persists is because the underlying trauma is too um, overwhelming for the nervous system to be able to handle. And so by having something like MDMA or Ibogaine or 5-MeO-DMT, it essentially knocks, it like significantly downregulates the fear response. So all of a sudden, these things that were too much for our nervous system to handle, they can be brought into conscious awareness. And that allows us to process through them and integrate. And then where microdosing can be very helpful is in that integration phase. So after we've had this extremely high dose of psychedelic and our life has been transformed, um, a big part of the change is continuing the work, meaning how do I commit to a contemplative practice like meditation, breath work, cold plunge, sauna? How do I change my diet? How do I get better sleep? Right? Because also what's very true for a lot of veterans, if they have PTSD or have struggled with PTSD, insomnia is quite uh, prevalent. Um, you know, Night terrors are quite prevalent. A uh, significant lack of sleep is almost pervasive. And so when we can actually go, oh, like I can finally sleep, then it has all of these incredibly beautiful downstream effects. Because when we get great sleep, we're essentially turning on our body's ability to really significantly, substantially heal itself. And that I think is where, um, where a lot of the lasting positive changes come from, that the psychedelic is the catalyst, it's the opener. But at the end of the day, it's really the day-to-day -day practices. And microdosing is a great bridge between the high doses and the, let's say, everyday practices that we have to commit to if we want to live you know, a, a healthier, better life. So um, 
that was a lot of amazing information right there. Thank you for that. Um, I think that's really interesting because I had a guest on before who talked about his experience um, on a veterans retreat in Mexico, how he was able to have all these uncomfortable emotions pulled up during the experience and which enabled him to process all those emotions and uncomfortable feelings that had been lurking below the surface and he didn't really realize what was causing um, so much distress in his life until he went through that ceremony and all those emotions kind of came up. Um, and then during that ceremony, he got to feel through all that and process all that. So I, I appreciate you sharing, um, you know, you used some scientific words that explained like how <laughs> the amygdala is downregulated and then we're able to kind of feel through the things that we've been repressing. Um, so I think that's really important. So thank you for sharing that. But there's another thing I want to ask you about that you shared. Um, so you mentioned your parents had never tried any drugs or smoked, never smoked cannabis or anything like that. And, um, your dad ended up microdosing. So I'm just curious, how, um, did your parents feel when you started a psychedelics company and, and what was his, uh, reaction to microdosing? It sounds like it was a positive thing. Yeah, you know, he, he calls them his magic drops now, which I think is cute. Um, so they definitely helped. Uh, you know, when my parents first found out about my psychedelic use about 10 years ago in 2014, my dad tends to be more chill. So he didn't like react or respond in a really significant way. Like I think by that age, I was... 24 and he trusted that I knew what I was doing. My mom definitely freaked out. Um, I think the, the phrase she used was you're going to turn into a wet noodle. And um, I disagreed with her because I had done it so often. And clearly I, the opposite had happened. I, I hadn't become a wet noodle. I'd become more intentional and aware. And um, I, gone through a lot of growth and development. So it took them about, I would say, a year or two to start to really come around. And probably in 2017, I in 2017, I started to get a lot of media. So Rolling Stone did a feature on my work with microdosing. I was on the front page of the New York Times. Um, Forbes did a feature, a number of other publications. And I was starting to speak at some reasonably, um, I would say, um, uh, what's the word like high level tech and business conferences. And so when they saw that in 2017, they were like, okay, maybe not, maybe Paul isn't, you know, full of shit. Maybe there is something here. Um, and then when I started to actually facilitate mushroom experiences in the Netherlands and I was going there back and forth and, helping a lot of Americans, they were like, oh, there's something significant here. Like essentially when it was clear that I was making a living and doing a pretty good job and like really taking care of myself, which I always had, it was never a worry, but I think that just provided another layer of, oh, there's something here. And then, you know, since then it's obviously in the last five years, really since Michael Pollan's book came out, there's just been uh, a massive shift in how Americans in particular have perceived psychedelics. Two stats are really interesting here. One stat is Cal Berkeley did a survey sometime in 2023, maybe six months ago. 
and found that 61% of Americans support legal psychedelic assisted therapy. Uh, so the majority of Americans now support, and this was a broad, this wasn't just in like San Francisco or this wasn't just in LA. This was, you know, a, a broad sample um, cross country. And what um, recent research has also shown is that the number of Americans who have taken a psychedelic has quadrupled since 2019. So COVID did something where I think it substantially impacted the mental health of people. They were in their homes, isolated. These conventional psychiatric medications were not helping, maybe even making things worse. Um, and all of these, not all of these, but there were a number of businesses that started to pop up in psychedelics who were providing telemedicine ketamine, where essentially you could get ketamine You'd have to go through a process. You'd have to talk to a medical professional, get a prescription, all these sorts of things, but you could get ketamine shipped to your house during COVID, do it in the safety of your own home with uh, an in-person, like a friend or just someone who's there to, to, to be there with you. And then like a virtual coach, basically. And I think that combined with the popularity and growing interest in microdosing, like even with third wave, we sell a grow kit. So we make it really easy for people to basically grow their own mushrooms in about six weeks. You can grow your own mushrooms. You can just, it's a kit we send to your house. You put it in a shoebox or a drawer, you know, you check it. The main thing is when you're switching around some of the material in the kit, you can't get mold in it. But if you can avoid mold, um, there's people have like a 60% success rate on the first one. Like it's pretty epic. And so, and I see you kind of like, gear and it's like now what happens when everyone could just grow mushrooms from home and have their own basically medicine supply and i think that is the 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 most interesting part about where we're headed it's more and more people are including vets a lot of vets are taking healing into their own hands because they are so sick of this broken system, the sort of sick care system, things that don't work, things that aren't effective, ways in which we've been lied to, ways in which, you know, corruption has really, um, well, I would say pharmaceutical companies have corroded uh, healthcare and science in healthcare. And people want natural medicines that we've been working with for, you know, mushrooms. We've probably been taking mushrooms for a hundred thousand years. Wow. Right? Um, it, what is the documentation on that? Well, not much, right? Like, like it definitely is hypothetical, but there's Terrence McKenna. Have you heard of Terrence McKenna? I have. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he wrote the book food of the gods and he had a topic that he explored in there called the stoned ape theory, which is that our ancient hominid ancestors, while they were traversing across the savanna grasslands of Africa, somehow, some way, you know, as we do, figured out that this particular type of mushroom helped them to see better. It helped them to communicate better. It helped them to navigate better. Um, this goes back to these low doses for performance. So like I can tell you before I started microdosing, I had something like 60, 20 vision. And now I don't need glasses and I don't need contacts. My vision isn't quite 2020, but it has substantially and significantly improved. And wow. so there's also something really interesting about these performance enhancing aspects. And so of course the, the hypothesis 
is that eating these low doses provided a competitive advantage because if you could see, smell, and hear better, which is what microdosing helps you to do, you could hunt better. You were more likely to be able to capture food and to survive. Um, and that that essentially led, and, and this hypothesis continues and that eventually they figured out if you take a very high dose of a mushroom, that will do something way different. And so one of the hypotheses as well is that the way that we perceive religion uh, or the way that religion has been woven into civilization, that a lot of these early cave paintings from 20,000 or 30,000 years ago actually have Psilocybe cubensis mushrooms in them. Wow. Meaning there was some relationship in these ancient, you know, people who were had, you know, painting caves they represented this relationship with psilocybin. Um, and if I, I won't go into too much more detail because I'm a history nerd. Like I studied history in undergrad. I like live and breathe history. But the final interesting aspect is there was this book, The Immortality Key, which was published a few years ago, which talked about how um, it was very likely that the early Christians were drinking wine with psychedelics in it. It was only when... Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire that they took the psychedelic out of communion. Um, and and there's even archaeological evidence in places like Gobekli Tepe. So Gobekli Tepe is considered this sort of cradle of civilization in Turkey. It's the oldest civilization archaeologically that we found. It goes back to 10,000 BC. And that there's evidence of beer chalices with psychoactive, potentially psychedelic substances within them. And so History, especially archaeology, is fraught with um, uh, challenging evidence to in interpret. But I, but my sense is, and what I know to be true, is that we have enough evidence to show that we as humans have been working with psychedelic plant medicines for minimum fifteen thousand years, and likely much longer. And that there's so much wisdom in retrieving these practices of the past. Right. I think that's a lot of where we're headed, even in the future. It's like there's so much uh, quick dopamine fixes and hits, and there's so many new and novel, let's say, drugs that are coming out all the time that it's mostly noise. And so much of the signal of what it means to live a good life is rooted in uh, evolutionary biology. It's rooted in tradition. It's rooted in practices or books that have been passed down, ideas that have been passed down for thousands of years sometimes. And so usually when I'm faced with this kind of dilemma of do I go with a new way or do I go with the old way? Do I take an SSRI? Do I take a mushroom that we've had a relationship with for a hundred thousand years potentially? I will almost always go with a thing that we had that humans have tried and tested for a much, much, much longer because there's wisdom in longevity and, you know, the amount of time that we've taken to get to know a certain plant or substance or medicine or molecule. Yeah, that that's really interesting. And I think uh, you mentioned uh, how in 2019, there was a study or a, a stat that came out that there was the amount of people who had tried a psychedelic quadrupled after after 2019 and 2020. And I think there's something there with like COVID and ever since COVID people are kind of really into like, I just want something natural and I'm tired of like all these SSRIs. I think people were locked in their house so long that they like got to think about like, 
I really don't want to just keep taking pills. What are my other options? Um, and I think that stoned ape theory is really interesting because it's like the apes are taking, you know, these mushrooms to help with hunting. And then suddenly they, they take like a little bit more than normal. And it's like, suddenly their brain turns on and they're like, who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Well, what does this all mean? There's something more going on here. It's like a awakening of consciousness. And, uh, and now post 2020, it's like, we're sort of circling back around to that. Um, One, because it, it taps you into a state of being that you come to recognize is not just you as an individual, but it's actually something that you share with not only everyone in this time and place, but also everyone who has come before you. Um, so there's, you know, some would call it God, source, oneness, divinity. It, it, and this isn't with microdosing. This is like with very high doses. There's an awareness of, oh, I'm not just this sort of individual personality. Like I'm not just Paul Austin. I mean, I, I walk around in this meat suit and I have a way that I do, but I'm actually something that is outside of time. It's outside of space. It's outside, like it exists and it permeates all of existence and reality. And in, in many ways, that's like consciousness, right? And so a huge part of then um, performance and development is how do we access more of our consciousness? Because when we can access more of our consciousness, um, I think life becomes more interesting. It becomes more creative. It becomes more nuanced, becomes more complex. And I think so much of what creates meaning in life is feeling like it's feeling curious. And so psychedelics help us help to open these pathways of curiosity. And um, at first that can be very like alarming and intimidating, but once you adjust to um, the process of, oh, like learning and questioning and like reconsidering, then I find life is like, it's just way more interesting. You know, it's way more uh, fun to dive into. Not so like matrixy, not so one dimensional, not so reductionist, not so like, not, not not so anhedonic, right? There's a lot of anhedonia today, which is just feeling of gray. Everything is the same. All the food is the same. All, it's like, no, what psychedelics do is they create a sort of a richer fabric of reality that allows us to see how diverse existence is and how fun it is to play with all the, the sort of aspects and dimensions of it. Yeah, it's like a little less mechanical. Like uh, that's another right. post-COVID thing. I think people are like, I don't want to be a cog in some machine anymore. You know, there's more, there's more purpose. There's more reason to be alive than just being like a part of some, someone else's machine. And, and the language we use, it matters a lot, right? Meaning the fact that we, we say download, you know, hardware, software, um, there's so much that's infiltrated our language that is the language of machines, even with artificial intelligence now today. And there's this fantastic, French philosopher who wrote a book called, um, uh, fuck, I'm totally blanking on it now. His name was Jacques Ellul, and it was basically about the onward march of the machine and how technology in and of itself, by creating more convenience, means that we as humans actually don't need to cultivate a skill set and that convenience creates apathy and apathy creates uh, it, it, it sort of impacts sovereignty in a way Oh, the technological revolution, I think is, is, is what it's called. Um, and 
so much of what's going on now is we recognize, okay, if we treat ourselves as machines, like even SSRIs and how they impact with brain chemistry is, is significant. It's, it's indicative of this, right? The, the way that SSRIs were developed is we tried to narrow in on a particular um, neurotransmitter, serotonin, and say, if we just shift serotonin, it'll shift everything else. And that was a very sort of reductionist framework, a very machine-like framework. If we just pull that one lever, right, then we can fix the machine. And what we actually found out is, well, actually the human body is a complex system. So if you shift that lever, this, something shifts over here and then something else shifts over here and then something else shifts over here and then something else shifts over here. And then, and then it's a domino effect. It's not a shift and a fix. And so if we come to realize, oh, this isn't just like tightening a wrench or a screw that actually the human body and human system is way more complex than a machine, well, then naturally how we approach it will, will change. And so whenever we're looking at complex systems, sort of a shortcut about how we work with complex systems is we leverage technology or ideas that we have a longstanding relationship with because we've already learned how to work with it. And so this comes back to like mushrooms versus SSRIs. For a complex system, mushrooms are way better because they recognize and realize there's a synergy, there's a holistic impact. Rather than trying to shut off a certain aspect and turn this one thing on, um, we come to realize that, oh, actually being human is way more, um, way more complex than, than, than we've been conditioned to believe that it is. Yeah, you know, this is a bit anecdotal, but in my own experience, I, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, I had a lot of friends who got put on, say, like Ritalin and stuff like that. And I can remember it. It's like it really I remember my friends getting prescribed that stuff and just being like zombies. And even people I know now who get prescribed like an SSRI, it really feels like it just numbs them out and just flattens everything out. Whereas I live in LA, so I do know people who have uh, had psychedelic experiences, and most of the people I know who have, say, done mushrooms are very vibrant, you know? So just anecdotally, the people I know who are, like, on SSRIs, and, and by the way, if, it, if SSRIs help you, I, I support that, but in my experience, I've noticed, like, almost like a flattening or a numbing out from pharmaceuticals, whereas I've seen people get healing from... Uh, plants or mushrooms and they they become very very vibrant and very like excited about life and 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 that's where like this nuance of ssris versus psychedelics it's like if you've been on ssris for some time we need off of them is no joke and it as you said it needs to be done under the guidance of a, a medical professional and they do have that effect it is a flattening Right, it's a, it's essentially anhedonia is precisely what SSRIs open up or facilitate, and that can be helpful in the short term um, because it's just it's like a nice band aid. But if you wear a band aid for thirty years, it's gonna get pretty icky. Mm -hmm. And what they found now in clinical research is that SSRIs are actually no more effective than placebos, wow. and so that I think shows then, well, how is it that psychedelics are different than SSRIs? Well, psychedelics, as we've already talked about, they allow you to open up. They allow you to go into the thing, confront the thing, face the thing, which means in the short term, it can be more difficult. It can be more confronting. It requires more courage. But in the long term, you won't be dependent necessarily or you know need to utilize a crutch like SSRIs. 
And, you know, another word that I love within this is biopsychosocial, which is that we are, um, we are biological beings. We're also psychological beings, meaning the traumas that have happened to us, the way that we were raised, the way that we were loved, you know, attachment theory, all of these things also make a difference. But then we're also beings of our environment, you know? And so when we're looking at um, healing, when we're looking at integration, when we're looking at drug use, when we're looking at psychedelic use, I think it helps to um, approach things from a biopsychosocial lens. As complex creatures, what is the role our biology is playing in this? And how can exercise and diet and sleep help improve our biology? What is the role that our psychology is playing in this? How can coaching and therapy and meditation and breath work help with our psychology? And then what is the role that our social environment our physical home, where we live, who our friends are, who our family is, our relationships, right? It really, you need that three-pronged approach if you if you want the sort of change and healing in psychedelics to be sustaining. Because if any one of those three aren't present, it becomes very easy to, um, you know, regress into a previous way of of living. Yeah, it's not a, it seems like it's not a magic bullet and you still have to do the work of processing whatever emotions get pulled up as well as then integrating into your life, the insights that you get from the experience. Precisely. Um, so I'm curious, can you tell me a little bit about third wave? You guys mentioned you have a mushroom kit. I'm curious what third wave does and also um, like how long you've been doing it. And also like, where are we at in terms of like legality and that kind of thing in the United States? So third wave was started in September, 2015. So we've had it for just under eight and a half years. Now this year will be nine years as an educational platform. It started just, you know, I published guides for free that everyone could read about LSD and mushrooms and ayahuasca and microdosing and ketamine. And was just like, here's a lot of the context and information you should know. About a year after that, I started a podcast. So if folks want to go down the rabbit hole, it's called the psychedelic podcast. And we published 230 episodes at this point in time with a lot of the leading figures, scientists, researchers, uh, entrepreneurs, writers, therapists, medical doctors, coaches in the psychedelic space. And, um, you know, the way that I look at third wave is how do we create an educational platform that helps people to learn, that helps people to connect with providers, retreat centers, clinics, therapists, and coaches, and also provides a supportive community both online and in person. So we do some in-person events. We have an online community that's free to join. And then the final aspect of it is our training program for practitioners. So, you know, as since psychedelics have grown so much in popularity over the last, you know, five, four or five years, six years, there's so many now tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who are becoming interested in this. And so we really need to ensure that if, they're working with psychedelics, whether it's a high dose or a microdose, that they do so with trained and qualified providers. And most of the emphasis on this in the psychedelic space is training therapists on, you know, how do you treat people with depression or how do you treat people with addiction or how do you treat people with PTSD, right? A psychiatrist as well, uh, a lot of, you know, social workers, cl clinical psychologists, and when I looked at the space, you know, my interest has always been leadership, performance, and well-being. And so we started a coaching practitioner program, training program for coaches, practitioners, body workers, uh, people who want to want to make a career transition into working with psychedelics. 
And it's a 10-month program. We do a retreat in Costa Rica with psilocybin mushrooms. And essentially, by the end of the 10 months, if someone wants to help pe- help someone prepare or integrate after an experience or help them to navigate microdosing or help them figure out what medicine is best for them, it's really setting um, setting those people up for success. And that, you know, I, at my heart, I'm a teacher. I, I'm also a CEO and an entrepreneur. I'm a founder, but really I love teaching and ed- education. I mean, my first job out of undergrad, I taught English in Turkey and I've just, I've been teaching for 14 or 15 years, you know, and I'm 33. So that's not, you know, um, and so I just, I love our training program because I get to go on retreat with all these incredible humans. I get to spend 10 months with them you know, lectures and other things. And the perspective that we provide is often, it's very unique and differentiated from what is taught in, I would say, most of the other psychedelic programs because almost every other program is very therapeutic, very clinical. And so they're all talking about a lot of the same research and ideas. And ours is much more around, you know, okay, how do we approach the whole human? And if they need healing, they need healing, but how do we inspire them to create and become who they're meant to create and become. And my hope is that in doing this, that will really create a cultural context for this third wave of psychedelics. That's been the goal since the beginning, right? Learning from the past, learning from the mistakes of the 1950s and 60s, you know, when LSD was legal and there were a thousand clinical papers published and it went sideways when we tried to take LSD out of the institutions and into broader culture. And the very simple reason that it went sideways is because there were no, there was no such thing as microdosing at that point in time, if I'm honest, right? It was only at doing a bunch of acid. And so I think the, the big change now is obviously the internet, but also the fact that microdosing is so prominent. And so I think as we've seen with that stat that I recently mentioned, a 4X, you know, the number quadrupled, a lot of that is microdosing. And I think that provides hope for, okay, if you want to experience the benefits of psychedelics, you don't necessarily need to take a bunch of mushrooms. That risk can be mitigated just by doing low-dose psychedelic work. So, you know, I started a 501c3 nonprofit called the Microdosing Collective. And right now we're actively working to include legislation around a regulated marketplace for microdosing supplements in California. Uh, we're working on it in Colorado as well. And the legal landscape is really interesting in that Oregon and Colorado have both legalized uh, psilocybin mushrooms. California, the legislative assembly uh, passed a bill, but the governor vetoed it because he wanted to see more regulations. But he said, if there's more regulations in this bill, then I will approve it. So it could be as soon as this year that California will legalize psychedelics, plant medicines, meaning ayahuasca, psilocybin, San Pedro, Iboga, potentially 5-MeO-DMT. So this is the year that I think psychedelics go from the underground to the mainstream. Uh, Once MDMA is an FDA approved treatment, and then once California legalizes psychedelics, it's going to create a massive shift in public policy and I think public opinion as well. Wow. And so I don't know a lot about this, but is California, when you say legalized, do you mean like legalized under like a professional supervision or are they just legalizing it like uh, anyone can That's, get it and do so, it at home? Yeah. I mean, Colorado's model is more so like 
personal possession now is fully legal. That doesn't mean that you can walk into a store and buy it, but it means possessing the substance is totally legal. There's not necessarily a dispensary market set up for that. In Oregon, it's more that like if you want to work with mushrooms, you have to go into a service center that is licensed by the state. You have to work with a facilitator who is licensed by the state and you pay for the overall treatment. Um, you know, so if it's a high dose, an eight hour experience, and that could cost up to $3,000 Wow. Um, in some cases. So it can be quite expensive. The more regulations are put into place, the more expensive it becomes. Uh, and so I think what California is attempting to do is sort of a balance between Oregon and Colorado. It's how do we allow for personal possession because that enables accessibility while still creating a regulated marketplace where if someone wants to go in and see a professional and they're willing to pay more money to do that, then there's an option for them to ensure that they can get the healing that they need with psychedelics. Yeah, that that sounds like it might be an issue because I feel like um, a lot of the people who are deeply in need of help and are maybe in a really dark place probably are also the people who can't afford $3,000 for some type of treatment. And, and the, the sort of balancing point there is assuming the FDA approves MDMA, my understanding of this is that the VA will cover the expense of the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for veterans. And it's not cheap. It's fifteen dollars to $20,000 to do a 12-week um, basically treatment window, which is three high-dose MDMA sessions with psychotherapeutic support before and after every single week. And so if you just calculate the time of that, right? Um, yeah. And plus, you know, the company that's bringing it through is called Lycos Therapeutics. They were previously called MAPS. You know, they have a patent on MDMA. So because it will be covered most likely by the insurance systems, they also charge, you know, I think the MDMA amount, they get like something like $5,000. Whereas if you wanted to buy the equivalent on the street, you pay 50. Wow. Well, I hope, I don't know what the answer is here, but I do hope that they are able to figure out something that makes it more accessible for the people who really need it. Cause that sounds like a quite a high price. And also I know that turning to the, to the street can be uh, dangerous if you're trying to get some type of, especially uh, with MDMA, right? Like, like with white powders now with how prevalent fentanyl has become, um, it is a risk. That's why I prefer just mushrooms. I think mushrooms are the medicine of the people. They're mycelial. They grow everywhere. And I think what will become more prominent in the next three, four, five years as more states legalize it is you're, there's just going to be people who they grow mushrooms and give them away for free to their community. So there, the more and more this is happening where there are these like churches that are sprouting up where then psilocybin mushrooms are their sacrament. And if you join as a member of the church, then you just get free mushrooms and can attend ceremonies and get togethers and other things like that. And so I think that is, if we look at accessibility, if we look at the future of what psychedelics hold, I think a great model is, and I say this having been raised in the church, is the church model. But instead of it being sort of a dogmatic uh, cult, if you will, it's a much more sort of fluid, open, spiritual community center. Yeah, where you do psychedelics, you do breath work. There might be some food. You know, you just like a church. When you go to church, you tithe. You donate ten percent of your income, so you'd still have to tithe and donate to be part of this community and this group. But I think these are how new communities are going to start to form. Yeah. 
Well, uh, I feel like we'll definitely have to have you back in maybe like six months or a year or something for the update of like, where are we at with, uh, you know, probably a year. I, I, early 2025 would be a good time to revisit it because my assumption is by that point in time, a lot of these things will have been passed. And then we're going to go, okay, if these things have been passed, some of these other dominoes are really going to start to fall. And so I think it's going to get really interesting this year in terms of what manifests. And keep up, we also have an election. So what's interesting about American politics and American policy in particular is it can be influenced by elections. And regardless of who is elected, the great thing about psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is that support is bipartisan. Uh, it is across yes. the board. Yeah, I have heard that. So we've been going for a little while. I want to make sure you're good on time and see if you are down for the can you survive this podcast hypothetical survival scenario. Let's do, let's, yeah, let's do a quick hit. I have, I have like uh, four more minutes or so. So we'll, we'll okay, lock well, it out. I'll, I'll be let, concise. All right, let's go fast. Let's go fast. Let me just get my notes out really quick for your hypothetical survival scenario. Okay, for this scenario, you are about to embark on a profound psychedelic journey with the guidance of a skilled facilitator. This journey aims to explore the depths of your mind and consciousness. Before you journey, you're advised to follow a specific diet to enhance the experience. Do you A, stick to a plant-based diet for at least a few days before the journey, or B, restrict your meat intake to once a day in the days leading up to the journey? Stick to plant-based diet, A. A is correct. You choose to stick to a plant-based diet for a few days to prepare your mind and body. The pre-journey diet includes more than just food. Do you A, Avoid watching any movies or engage or engaging with social media for at least a few days before the journey or B engage with films and content that are thought provoking in order to come up with ideas of what to work on during your journey. A. A is correct. You decide to abstain <laughs> from movies and social media to ensure a like clearer this. mental space. Do you run this through chat GPT? This would, chat, this would be a great chat GPT prompt, right? To to write these out. Yeah, I've actually your, I've written like I have written like 80 of these things for this show. Yeah. Uh, oh my gosh. It's my wow. first psychedelic one though. So thank you for for playing along. Um, yeah. and okay, so moving right along. In order to strengthen your body and nervous system before the journey, do you A, integrate daily meditation and breathwork sessions into your routine, or B, increase your weightlifting and cardio so you have a strong body for the journey? A. A is correct. You choose to integrate <laughs> meditation and breathwork, preparing your mind and nervous system for the upcoming experience. Moving right along, you are now in a plant medicine ceremony. As the psychedelic experience intensifies, you start feeling a bit overwhelmed. Do you A, reach out to your facilitator for guidance on managing the feelings, or B, embrace the intensity, allowing the experience to unfold? B. B is correct again. <laughs> you decide to embrace the intensity and allow the experience to unfold naturally. The visuals become vivid and you find yourself in a surreal landscape. Do you A, close your eyes and focus on internal sensations, or B, explore the landscape interacting with the visuals? A. A? Okay, I had B. Interesting. Um, but 
you know, it's open so, to well, interpretation. The, the, well, the well, the interesting nuance. I mean, this is interesting. The interesting nuance here is it depends a how skilled you are at this, and it also depends b if you want it if you want them to get more intense. Because if you have open eye visuals and you close your eyes, they will get even more intense, and they may even shift in nature. So if the open eye visuals are really intimidating or they're quite scary. And sometimes shifting it, closing the eyes, going inwards could be a way to kind of move that energy. So the sort of feeling of anxiety or paranoia doesn't become too much. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. And I appreciate the elaborating because it helps those who are, <laughs> who are playing <laughs> along at home. Yeah, I like uh, this. Okay, so you, you are, uh, you're in your experience and suddenly the atmosphere becomes challenging and you begin to feel a sense of fear. Do you confront the fear and explore its origin, that's A, or B, request support from the facilitator to navigate the emotions? A, confront the fear. A, I love it. That, that, that's what I had. I had A, that's correct. You decide to confront the fear, exploring its source within the psychedelic experience. You find the source of your fear and achieve a state of inner peace and bliss. Um, after the psychedelic journey, your coach emphasizes the importance of integration. Do you a journal about the experience to gain insights and reflections or B choose not to dwell on the experience, assuming it will naturally integrate over time? A, and I think there's a balance there where the day or two days after it's good to have some spaciousness, like more meditation. Don't try to get too analytical too quick. But then as things are congealing more and more, then more journaling, committing to a practice, all these things are are helpful. Because I think part of the healing for a lot of people is getting it out of the monkey mind. So to hop back into it too quick can sometimes be counterproductive. Fantastic. A, A is correct. Uh, but thank you for adding the detail. It's always helpful. Um, yeah. So you, you opt to journal about your experience, gaining valuable insights and reflections. As you, and we got two questions left. Um, as you gain insight, you feel the overwhelming urge to call your former employer and tell them how you really feel. Do you A, call them and tell them what's on your mind, or B, wait at least a couple days before making any heavy phone calls? Yeah, I say wait a minimum of like a week for any like thing like this. Maybe a month if it's a major life decision, like I'm going to quit my job, I'm going to leave my spouse, I'm going to, right? So, but wait. Yeah. Always better to wait. Yeah, B. Fantastic. You want to wait at least a few days, possibly weeks, possibly a month before making any huge life-changing changes in your life. Uh, so okay. B is correct. Um, and final question. Once you have sat with your feelings for a while after the experience, do you A, integrate the lessons learned into your habits and behavior, or B, keep the psychedelic experience separate from your daily life? A. A. Fantastic. Uh, so thank you for uh, playing along with the Can You Survive This podcast. You have survived this podcast. Woo! Uh, hopefully anyone playing along at home uh, got something out of that. And if you have any questions, feel free to throw them in the comments um, and we'll try to get to those. Um, but yeah, as we wrap up, do you want to let people know? Um, where can people find you um, if they want more information? Sure. Like, where can they uh, check out your stuff? 
So if anyone is interested in the training program, that's psychedeliccoaching.institute. You can also find it on our main website, The Third Wave. So that's thethirdwave.co. And the podcast is there, all of our programs, courses, our community, our, our directory, it's all on Third Wave. And then if folks want to reach out to me directly, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at paulaustin3w. And I'm quite active, especially right now, I'm quite active. So I check pretty often. And if you have questions or you know any other thoughts that you want to share, please uh, don't hesitate to reach out. I'm happy to connect. Amazing. Thanks for coming on the podcast and uh, bye everyone.